Welcome to The Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. The process of grieving after a death is usually complex and difficult enough in its own right, but there are additional and what at times can be very obstinate challenges when the death is the result of a murder. Joining us today is Stefan Pasternak, a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in Palm Beach County in Florida. Dr. Pasternak, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Mourners are faced with a complex web of reactions and emotions. What we do know is that there are differences between those who mourn a loss by a disease or a real accident versus those who are suffering a loss by a murder. How do we conceptualize, how do we understand the notion of homicide bereavement? The loss of a loved one in any circumstance is a kind of emotional earthquake that shakes the basic structure of your life. When the manner of dying is sudden, unexpected, and violent, you then have a unique clinical syndrome that combines symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and pathological bereavement. One of the problems mourners run into is that the manner of the death often determines both the meaning of death and often influences the nature of their bereavement. It's one thing to accept the death of your 85-year-old grandmother and you feel the life cycle was well-lived and complete. But when there is a violent mode of dying, the problem of transgression and of pain and often torture or suffering really makes it more unbearable for the surviving friends and family. So there must be a lot of anger here. People may not know how to express it. This is not a normal death. It is so horrific that the involuntary responses are inchoate, often unnameable, pre-symbolic, psychophysiological, just an intense immediate reaction of horror and revulsion. And anger does play an important role in all grief, no matter what stage of life. But when there is a criminal who murdered a loved one, there is intense anger at the murderer, and this often disrupts the grieving process because a person is filled with fantasies of revenge and desire to catch the criminal. There's a lot of frustration with the criminal justice process that complicates facing their pain. If someone dies from a real accident or a disease process, then that has a different flavor to it. But it must be so difficult at times to accept a death that comes from murder because murder is not by accident. It is by design and usually for some personal gain. One wonders where a person, the family of the victim, where they put this in their psychological inventory, so to speak. That's what makes it so difficult because your normal assumption about life is that you are a good person and you work hard, you're going to be rewarded with a pretty good life. In that picture, you know that there are automobile accidents or an occasional hurricane or, or earthquake or car accident, but people don't usually fit into their schema of life the possibility that they could be murdered. One of the additionally traumatic aspects of homicide is it shatters your faith in human nature. It shatters your fundamental assumptions about the world you live in and how life is to be lived. And it also shakes your very fundamental sense of safety and stability so that survivors of homicide bereavement also often have an overwhelming fear because they know there's a murderer out there 
And sometimes the murderer has stolen a pocketbook or a wallet, or if it was a carjacking, they got the car with the keys and, and the home address. And they often fear that the murderer will come after them too. So when there's a car accident or a normal death, the fear of death is much less. There can also be a sense of no closure, no coming to terms with what happened when the murderer has not been found, or in similar situations when someone is missing and then their body is found and no one knows where the murderer is. It has to leave such an open, gaping hole in the person's psyche. That's right, and I've seen that in cases of my own. With one woman whose husband was murdered, it took in criminal investigators over five years to finally apprehend the person. And once she was able to participate in the trial and see this man go to jail, was able to put aside the anger and finally turn to her sense of loss because until that point, she was involved in monitoring the criminal investigation, doing her own detective work, going to the crime scene, talking to people. And that's what happens to family members when their loved one is dead and there is no criminal. They often become detectives themselves and sometimes put them in danger. And what about a child when there's a murder in the family? Perhaps even the child witnessed the murder, but suddenly the person is gone. How do they deal with it? How do we look at it psychoanalytically? What does it do to their own sense of vulnerability and their ability to handle the emotions? There have been some studies about this, especially in cases of children and adolescents who witness the homicide of a parent, not an infrequent event in some of our inner city areas. And the emotional aftermath of the loss of a parent is much more contaminated with anger and violent imagery. And it makes it very difficult for the child. And this usually leads to some dissociative process. I was consulting in an inner city clinic and I organized a seminar on homicide bereavement because we were seeing so much of it. And when the staff came and I surveyed the staff, out of 45 people in the course, over 25 had had relatives murdered in their childhood and some had witnessed the murder of a parent. But they had completely repressed it. So what happens with children, especially children under the age of seven, they have a much greater difficulty with it. It will show up as a body pain. It gets represented in the body in physiological terms because they're unable to symbolize and conceive of what death is. After the age of seven, that is much easier for children to form mental representations of the living and the dead to understand the concept. And the older they get, the less terror there is about death, but it does make it hard. You can't explain it once. At each developmental stage, a child is going to have different questions, and they're going to be able to tolerate different degrees of information. For example, with 9-11, when so many people were killed, people who worked with the surviving families, one of their greatest difficulties was trying to make sense of this. Why would someone crash their plane and kill daddy or mommy? Very hard for anyone to comprehend this, but even harder for children. And so it's a long-term project of watching how the child develops, seeing what fantasies they have, seeing if they develop phobias or become fearful, and then trying to get them the right help to cope with where they are at that time. There could also be a very different flavor to this if the victim was part of an underworld, such as dealing in drugs or buying drugs. And some people may actually go so far as to say that the person was toying with danger. This can complicate things for a family very much. Well, we have seen an interesting and troubling phenomenon with inner-city youths who have relatives murdered. 
first, they are not aware of their grief. They are consumed by anger. And so you get this endless cycle of revenge murder. And then they go out and they kill somebody else. And then they are killed by people seeking revenge for that killing. And there is also a criminal mentality that can take hold so that a person may have ego ideal of themselves as some sort of person who no one can kill and who kills others. And it does lead to a very corrupt, dangerous self-image who has been numbed by his own grief and losses to the point where he has no empathy for anyone else and will then kill without remorse. Every now and then we hear of situations and sometimes see it actually happening on television where the family of a victim forgives the murderer. And then we see videotape of them meeting the person in jail, walking up, shaking their hand. It must be quite a process to go through to reach the point where one can actually sit and talk to the one who took a family member away from them. The psychology of forgiveness is a very complicated area uh, with very little publications about it, actually, relative to other psychological issues. It does reflect a more mature person who put the murder of their loved one in perspective and transcend it and able to get beyond their own anger and desire for revenge and move on in life. These people who have an easier time grieving and moving on because they are able to see something else in the phenomena of murder. They see that it's God's judgment that the murderer will have to fear, not theirs. They have a perspective that's often different from others who want revenge and punishment and uh, other than the people who show up when the death penalty for a convicted murderer is to be carried out. It is a very hard place to get to, I would say. It seems that all of the major cultures and religions of the world expect that mourning takes about a year, and it starts usually very soon after the death occurs. And I'm just wondering, is there any sense of, is it a prolonged mourning period? Is it more complicated because of the nature of the death? I'd be interested in your thoughts. First, let's look at normal grief for a moment. There's a lot of controversy about normal grief. We know that the normal grief, let's say a person dies at a heart attack at age 60 or 65 or whatever, and the family is grief-stricken, the grief is going to be felt seven days a week for about six months to a year. There is this pervasive sense of loss. There's a struggle about the finality of death. There's a longing to have the person come back. There may be auditory or visual hallucinations, and there may be a lot of somatic symptoms. Chest pain if their loved one died from a heart attack or abdominal pain if they died from some gastric disorder. But over time, the death is worked through and integrated. Integration takes time and it occurs in different steps, but eventually the person finally accepts the reality of the loss overcomes their bitterness about it, revises their life plan, and understands that their lost loved one would want them to continue to live. They will usually be able to re-engage in social activities and reconnect with things that they had particular interest in, and the sense of loss is reduced although a sense of sadness and loneliness may persist. And recently, Otto Kernberg wrote an article about mourning in which he reflected on some of his own experiences following the death of his wife, and he found himself years later erupting into tears. One of the problems that 
grieving people have is that everyone is in a hurry for them to get over their grief. And this is particularly true with victims of homicide grief because everyone wants them to stop being so upset and to move on. And there's a lot of denial about the horror of what has happened to them. People tire of hearing about it. And so you often find that people who've lost a loved one to murder end up feeling hurt by their friends who can no longer bear to to be with them because their grief is so persistent. With homicide bereavement, the grief can be endless. And it gets hung up first by a number of factors. One of the things that delays integration and working through is that there are so many intrusive, violent images of the loved one's murder. People actually think about how it happened, and they relive it. Sometimes they try to imagine there wasn't any pain, but I was often asked by someone, when the bullet hit, do you think it hurt? And then there are overwhelming fears that they too might be murdered. The grieving and integration process is thus hung up by fear and violent imagery and the anger. And then there is the frustration about often the lack of an arrest or the lack of justice in the justice system. Very difficult. The police come to a plea bargain agreement and you think the criminal gets off without much punishment. And then there are the problems about the police. In some cases, the family members are potential suspects. And I've seen situations where a family can't get the body back from the coroner, so the funeral arrangements are delayed. And then police are going through the house looking for clues if the murder took place at home. Then your house is now a violent scene. And how do you sleep in the house where your husband or wife was murdered? Those are the things that really make it difficult to get on with the grieving process. The emotional aftermath of the loss of a relative to homicide is filled with such terror and fear, conscious and unconscious, that it's very hard to process it. And so people are in dissociated states, dazed, confused. It takes them a lot longer to come to accept the reality of the death. They blame themselves. For example, one young woman whose mother was murdered felt horribly guilty because her mother had gone to the shopping mall to find her a particular dress. And if the mother hadn't gone to the mall that day, she wouldn't have been kidnapped in her car by the criminal and murdered. Guilt can hold things up. Those are just a couple of the other issues that make bereavement following homicide so much harder to process. Media often complicates it because when there's a murder, there's usually TVs all over the crime scene. And sometimes the bloody bodies of the victims are shown on TV. Sometimes they do reruns, especially with terror violence. I had one patient who was sitting in her dentist's office. Uh, he guy had a television set, and all of a sudden there's a news blast about somebody in Europe who was murdered. And then all of a sudden she sees the scene of her husband with her husband's body lying on the, on the street in a European city. He had been murdered uh, overseas uh, five or six years before that. She ran screaming out of the dentist this office. So those are some very unusual things where the media can complicate it too. And they're often very insensitive. If a person is grieving and they get a microphone shoved in their face, well, how do you feel about your husband's murder? And what the media doesn't understand is that the willingness of a survivor to talk doesn't mean they really want to talk or be on TV. 
they're just dazed. They, they suddenly are vulnerable to pouring out all their feelings. And then they may see themselves on TV in a rerun a few months later, and they say, gee, I, I can't believe they did that to me. Now they feel additionally violated. This is clearly not the usual mourning process following the normal expected manner in which someone dies. Are there groups around the country? Are there support groups to help people who are in this unique situation? Many states now have passed victim legislation so that the survivors of murders could get state assistance to pay for therapy. In some states, they had special clinics. And there are a number around the state in the Washington, D.C. area. There was a group called Compassionate Friends, and Compassionate Friends had started really to provide sanctuary for family members who had lost a child. And then they branched out. So it, it varies. There are different recovery groups out there. One of the other complications people face when this homicide bereavement is that the large majority of people don't seek any help at all. Very often they bury it and then you find that they drink or use drugs. And then in the course of doing a, an evaluation for substance abuse, you find out that their father was murdered 10 years ago or something like that. And then ever since then, their life has gone downhill, but they never connected the dots to realize that their denial and dissociation of that ter- traumatic event has totally disrupted the course of their life. But that's a real problem. People are often so overwhelmed that they can't bear to seek help. Bereavement following homicide is a different process and often involves many other variables. Stefan Pasternak is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in Palm Beach County, Florida, and he has been good enough to sit and talk to us a little bit about this. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you.